I would like to start off this episode by reading a few excerpts from Paul Bogart's book, Let There Be Night, a testimony on behalf of the dark. It is basically a number of essays that he has put together from various folks who love the night sky. Here's from Paul's opening. I like to imagine readers taking this collection to their own favorite nighttime roost, somewhere with an amber light to shade the darkness, somewhere with the stars close by, somewhere with the scents and sounds of darkness. I like to imagine them walking outside, seeing night in a new way for the first time. Let There Be Night, testimony on behalf of the dark, edited by Paul Bogard. The Gifts of Darkness, Kathleen Dean Moore. There's more. Darkness feeds a sense of wonder, a young person's great gift, astonishment at a world alive with marvels. The world is half the time in darkness. This is a fact of the great spinning earth. When we protect children from darkness, when we dim or destroy it with artificial light, we shut them off from fully half of the human experience of what is wonderful. When we limit children to those worlds they can see, we risk closing them to worlds they can only hear or smell or feel against their skin. This is an offense against exhilaration and joy. Blessed is the person who holds the childhood memory of that first night sleeping in the backyard, the heavy dew, the smell of mown grass, headlights sweeping the hedges, crickets suddenly still. In praise of darkness, John Daniel, from the play of charmed subatomic particles to the reaches of interstellar space, nature is largely a creature of darkness. Ode to Jeff Cobb by Jan DeBlue. The dark night is one of nature's most precious gifts, a rare and valuable cloth embroidered with the history of our race, which we fritter away to our detriment. Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, the Art Box. Paul Bogart, thank you for joining us. you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I am um, a native Minnesotan. Uh, I grew up here and now work here, but um, in the years between that, I've lived all over the country, um, out west in Nevada and New Mexico, out east in Virginia and North Carolina. And I've written a, a few different books. Um, the one I think I'm best known for is The End of Night, 
I also wrote a book called The Ground Beneath Us and um, a children's book called What If Nights. And uh, recently just um, brought out an anthology uh, called Soul Nostalgia, which is about uh, our emotional response to what we see happening to the world around us. Yeah, happy to be back in Minnesota, living and working, raising a five-year-old and, and continuing to work on my books. So you grew up in Minnesota? I did, yeah. And you did ice fishing in a little hut, and that's all I think of when I think of Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much all there is. Um, I didn't, I mean, I certainly have been in a lot of ice houses, but I, uh, I'm not a big fisher uh, person, so not too much, but I, I do love ice skating and uh, and all the other good things. I was introduced to you. Uh, my wife and I were resident volunteers at Chiricahua National Monument in Arizona. And she came home um, from one of her stints working in the visitor center with um, End of Night and said, I know you'll like this. And, of course, I ate it up and I loved it. Uh, and then I didn't think much more about you until uh, recently. We were Well, last summer we were shooting the Milky Way in Great Basin. And uh, I went to the bookstore and there was Let There Be Night. Yeah, Let There Be Night actually was my first book. It came out a while back, an anthology where I collected essays. I do have actually um, a more recent book, To Know a Starry Night, and that's a, a coffee table book with the University of Nevada Press with some really amazing uh, night sky photographs. But yeah, they all have the word night, so it's easy to <laughs> to mix them up. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be ordering that. When was your first, and I know what mine was, um, we had moved from back east out to Denver. I worked for AT&T and they moved us around a lot. And I had been whitewater rafting with my son and we were camping in Pike National Forest and nature called about 3 a.m. I unzipped the flap and it took my breath away. Uh, and I hear people use that too often it takes my breath away. It literally took my breath away, what I saw out that tent flap. Um, so when was your, you, the first real experience that you felt the night sky? I, I guess I would think of a couple. One is um, kind of the long, long-term experience of growing up where um, we have a cabin in northern Minnesota and the night sky has always been... Um, amazing there i can i can definitely remember can't tell you what how old i was but i can definitely remember looking up through the pine trees to just see you know um more stars than you could ever count kind of thing up beyond the tops of the pines so that was part of as i like to say it, it imprinted on me it, it just um it it that's what that's what night the night sky looked like um, when I was a little kid, and so um, you know compare that to later in life when I discovered light pollution, and we could talk more about that. But um, the other experience was uh, kind of a one of those once in a lifetime experiences where I was 18, and I was uh, on what they call a gap year now between. Uh, high school and college and i had gone down into morocco um at the edge of the sahara desert and kind of the same thing i woke up in the middle of the night and um was in a, a pretty uh rugged youth hostel um and just kind of wandered out uh the front door and um my experience was that my first thought was that it was snowing here i am in the moroccan desert and uh, i just i thought it was snowing and it just turns out that um there were stars from horizon to horizon and just you know more again more stars than you can than you can really count and um that 
once in a lifetime experience has has stayed with me over the years. Yeah, that's epic. Huh? Uh, our our sons worked at a at a place in Death Valley called Panaman Springs Resort, and actually, I think it was even before they worked there. Uh, we were there. We we would always go to Death Valley, so I could shoot the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. And um, we were talking to one of the owners, and he was telling us about a German tourist who had grabbed him one night, who was staying there a few nights, and said, "Why is there always this cloud in the sky right there?" <laughs> and he said, "I went outside, looked in, and it hit me." He said, "Well, that's the Milky Way." So, you know, there was a German tourist who had never really seen it. And, and that story's kind of stuck with my wife and I that, oh, there's there, there's that cloud in the sky. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I remember, uh, I mean, I've had certainly had similar experiences. I remember being on the island of Sark, S-A-R-K, in the, in the English Channel. I was waiting for the clouds to um, kind of clear so I could see the night sky. And I finally realized <laughs> <laughs> I was seeing the Milky Way. Um I just wasn't, I guess I wasn't used to just seeing it how it was there. So, um, yeah, it, the, that feeling gets the best of us. You know, most people these days just don't really know what that's like to be enveloped with natural darkness. Um, we're just, we're swamped with light, most of us. And um, that experience is just it's something special for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think it'll ever get old. No, definitely not. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, you can start to get the light pollution now. Um, we interviewed sure. we interviewed Alex Harper. Not sure you know him. He's uh, uh, he's the head educator for Red Rock Audubon chapter, and we got to talking about um, the impact of light pollution on migrating birds. Yeah, absolutely. I would I would step back for just a second and say that you know uh, the impact of light pollution, uh, our our use of artificial light at night, is really impacts the natural worlds uh, in so many ways. Um, and and um, I, I remember a, a biologist said to me once, uh, you know, life on Earth evolved with bright days and dark nights, and we need both. And and just this idea that it seems like everything that we get around to studying these days in terms of the impact of artificial light on nocturnal or crepuscular species is, is that it's not a good thing, which to me just always, it makes sense, right? We Everything evolved with darkness at night, and so when we flood artificial light into habitat, we are going to have negative impacts. So that just makes sense to me. Um, if people have heard about this issue, they've probably either heard of sea turtles and, and the impacts to sea turtles um, when the hatchlings come up and they scurry toward the bright lights, um, which used to be the moon and the stars over the ocean and now are the parking lots and the hotels um, across the street, so the wrong way. They've either heard of turtles or they've heard of birds um, and the impacts to migratory birds and more than 400 species of birds migrate at night in North America. Um, it kind of goes around all year, but of course, primarily in the fall and in the spring. Fall is a particularly tough time for birds with artificial light because of all the young birds that are making their first journey. They were born in the north and now they're making their first journey down south and they've never experienced anything like the gauntlet of uh, artificial light that that we throw up in their way. 
artificial light tends to disorient birds. It gets them to, uh, you know, sometimes fly toward birds. A lot of the birds that fly into windows and buildings during the day were drawn into those urban areas at night by the lights. Sometimes it just birds uh, will circle the light until they're exhausted. Um, there's just all sorts of ways that artificial light seems to interfere with migratory birds. And I find that a particularly frustrating and uh, sad aspect of this problem. Yeah, seriously. And I, I've seen, well, I, I got to watch um, a, a short movie put out by, I think it was um, University of Utah, and uh, and I don't know whether you know Mark Bailey or not. He's an, mm. an, an astronomer in, in Tor, Utah. And, and Tor, Utah, by the way, is, uh, is, is has their dark sky um, designation and they they jump through hoops to keep it. It's pretty interesting. I've been up there when they've been monitoring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but but Mark talks about and they talk about that. You know, even breast cancer. You know, because yeah. because even when we sleep with the light, we're not we're not getting full dark. Yeah, I think uh, you know again similarly to what I was saying about you know the impacts of artificial light to um, the natural world. I mean, we're we're part of that natural world, and so impacts to human beings as well we we evolved with with bright days and dark nights and and so uh what we're seeing in studies is is oftentimes not definitive you know we can't say that exposure to artificial light at night gives you cancer kind of thing but it it does seem to have negative uh negative impacts and and again i just think that the more that we learn about artificial light and its impact on us the more we're going to find that it's a negative impact um and i you know on the on the I was going to say the bright side, uh, <laughs> which isn't quite right. The bright but, side. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember, you know, one of the things that I came away from writing the end of night with one of the ideas that seemed really easy and true to me was just to sleep in the dark. You know, make your room as dark as possible and sleep in the, the darkest uh, area that you can, um, because it, it, what they found is now is that just it just takes a minimal amount of artificial light at night to to have these negative impacts, and so uh, to sleep in the darkness um, is uh, something that most people can can do. Yeah, and I sure get good night's sleep in the total total dark. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, most yeah. of the time with a podcast running, which I normally hear about three or four minutes of before I'm boom asleep. <laughs> Do we want to talk about your process of writing a book? It depends on the book, of course, and the and the the process and kind of when you know when when did I start writing uh, the book? I could say with the end of night that you know from the time that I signed the contract to when I turned in the book it was a year. They give you a year to to write the the book but i was i was certainly working on i had to research and write the book proposal which was you know several months long and then in some respects i'd been working on that book all my life you know (laughs) if you get down to it yes right but i think you know all told for me it probably takes a couple years to at least a couple years to to put a book together and when you sit down do you sit down for long periods of time or i do yeah i do i i um i find that uh i really need to or like to you know get into that creative headspace as it were and there's a (laughs) there's that old saying that um it takes me four hours to write for an hour um, that somebody somebody once said, and that has always made a lot of sense to me. That it, it's unfortunately, at least for me, and I think this is true for a lot of writers, that you just can't 
sit down at the desk, turn on the computer or bring up your pen and paper and just start writing. It just doesn't, the process takes more than that. And oftentimes um, my experience will be sitting in front of a blank screen for an hour trying to get started or writing something stupid and, and just trying to get going. And then finally, um, you know, after an hour, an hour and a half, things will start to flow. Um, sometimes, sometimes it's different than that, but that is often the case. And so to have a large block of time, I found this out. I, I knew this, but I really learned it the hard way when my five-year-old was born because I suddenly lost the ability to, you know, sit down for four or five hours at a time and work on something. And my wife would say, well, why don't you, why don't you go work? Why don't you go write for an hour? And it's just like, <laughs> I can't even, it's hard to even get started. Yeah. That's one of the challenges is, is finding those, those windows of time when you can really get into the project. Yeah, and and how I'm going to ask you how you deal with distractions, and it's interesting that we talk a lot about it with our other artists here, not writers, you know, but other what you do as an art, but you know how they deal with distractions, and especially when you sit down on a computer. When I I know that I have to to close my email, and I have to close my Facebook page if I want to sit down and start editing a podcast. Because otherwise, I will actually. I listened to um, a gentleman from Google the other day, and he said that he did a study that every interruption takes twenty-three minutes to recover. Yeah, I've heard that too. Um, I I think it's really true, and and I think I would you know even I would add to that the distraction of social media for me. I don't even have to look at social media for it to distract me. I can just. I can just have it in my life. And so one thing I'm doing this summer that I started about five weeks ago was to um, to just stop looking at Twitter or Facebook or um, Instagram, for example. Those are the primarily the social media things that I had been looking at. And I just found that I needed I wanted to to get away from those things again to kind of create that um, creative space in me. It just uh we could talk a long time about this, but I think, you know, our, our constant drive to check social media or check our phone or that kind of thing makes it hard for us to really concentrate and, and focus on, on the work. I'm battling, I'm fighting the good fight in terms of <laughs> trying to deal with that this summer. I mean, it's so easy and obviously they're they're designed to do exactly that, to get us to uh, to be distracted. So, You want to talk about your book? Yeah, so the the word is uh, soul nostalgia. It's like nostalgia, but um, soul nostalgia. Oh, and uh, it was coined by um, an Australian philosopher uh, about twenty years ago to describe the the distress from witness, witnessing environmental change, or as he says, can be the homesickness we feel while we're still at home. You know, we're we're seeing. The changes around us, and I just from the minute I heard it, I, I, I found it super evocative and and really spoke to me. And um, it has spoken to a lot of people all around the world. The word the word soul nostalgia has really has really taken off um, and kind of entered the lexicon to describe this feeling that so many of us have of just of witnessing you know the changes um, you know primarily to climate change, but biodiversity loss and 
and other things. I'm sitting here in Minneapolis today and we're, you know, we're swamped in, in wildfire smoke from Canada. And as we were saying at the start, you know, I grew up here. I've lived here much of my life and uh, it's, it was never, never used to be this way here. It's that kind of thing that brings um, uh, this emotion of soul nostalgia. And so the book for the anthology, I wanted to ask some really great writers. There are about 33 uh, other writers in the book. Uh, I wanted them to write uh, short essays, so about a thousand words, 1500 words, um, about their feelings of soul nostalgia and what are they seeing, what are they feeling, and, and importantly, sort of how are they dealing with it? What are they, what are they doing with it? For me, I think, you know, especially having a, having a wonderful little child, you know, there's just so much joy in life and so many wonders, but that coexists with this, this form of grief that I, that I feel, you know, looking at the world that I love uh, and how it's being changed. The book collects 34 essays and uh, I love it. I think the writing is amazing. I uh, found people did a wonderful job of sharing their experiences and um, I highly recommend it. Oh, that's great. So it's kind of like Let There Be Night. It's absolutely like Let There Be Night, yep. And that was kind of on purpose because I'd had a really good uh, experience putting that book together. And it kind of led to, you know, the end of night, writing about the end of nights. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll do something related to emotions, you know, and the impact to our, our emotional health, our psychological health, and kind of see where that goes. So You want to talk about your other books? I didn't know that much about children's books. I mean, from the time I was a child to um, kind of when I had my own child. But then you get kind of get a crash course when you when you have your own kid. I just found that I loved the the books. It made me think about you know growing up myself and and what I read and that kind of thing. And and um, so I I wrote this book called What If Night, which is kind of short for What If Night Never Came. And it just speaks to the value of nighttime and very natural darkness for life on Earth, including little kids. And uh, it was a great experience. I, I would love to write more children's books going forward. But that's great. Well, I have to get that book for our, our grandchild. One of the things about children's books is that it is that the, the text is you are writing a paragraph. You are writing, you know, something pretty um Pretty short. It's important to get it right. How about some of your other books? Yeah, absolutely. The um, the best thing, if, if folks are interested, is to just uh, Google my name and go to my website. Or Amazon certainly has everything. Uh, or you know your local bookstore too. After I did the anthology, uh, Let There Be Night, um, I wrote the book. Uh, the End of Night, uh, which is still in print uh, 10 years later, um, still kind of the book I'm known for. And uh, everything I write about in, in that book uh, has only become more relevant as light pollution has gotten worse and uh, more and more people have become aware of the issue. So I'd recommend people check that out. After that, I wrote a book called The Ground Beneath Us, which is, as some people say, uh, in the end of night, I was looking up, and then the ground beneath us, I was looking down. Just a lot of the same issues, kind of our separation from the natural world, and stories about different kinds of grounds, battlegrounds, burial grounds, um, places where we get our, our food, our water, our spirit, those kinds of things. Uh, that was great. It was a fun book to write. Then, as I said, I have the coffee house or the coffee table book from the University of Nevada, which is featuring uh, images from the American West. It's called To Know a Starry Night. Just amazing photographs in there. And then my writing uh, along with, yeah. And then most recently, uh, this anthology that we were talking about, 
Soul Nostalgia, which is out of the University of uh, Virginia Press and uh, just came out uh, in April. So it's hot off the press. I have a essay I'll be bringing out uh, in the New York Times uh, next week. I don't know when, when folks will be listening to this, but it, it should be in, in mid-June. And that in that essay, I talk about soul nostalgia and uh, some of the issues that you and I have been talking about. Turning towards the future, what keeps you up at night? Speaking of this essay I'm writing for the Times, um, basically the idea is that of all this wildfire smoke in, the, in our sky is uh, kind of robbing us of the blue sky this summer. As I said, you know, this never used to happen here. And it, it is a, a sign of climate change impacting the world. And it really makes me think about my, um, not only my life and, and kind of the grief I feel over what's happening, but also my child's life. For the last 10 or 15 years, I've been writing a lot about the night sky and the value of that and all the threats from light pollution. And more and more, I'm, I'm uh, writing about the day sky as well and the changes to the day sky, such as uh, this wildfire smoke. So does it keep me up at night? Thankfully, I'm still sleeping really well. But <laughs> That's because you keep the room dark. <laughs> right, exactly. But, you know, whenever I just look out my window today and I just see all the smoke in the air and I just think, gosh, I, I sure do love blue sky and it makes me sad to, to see all the smoke. So that definitely is something that's on my mind. Certainly with forest fires, uh, there have always been fires and, and, and uh, it's good for the forest in some ways. I think the difference and, and it's an important difference is that the fires we're seeing now are burning hotter and bigger and more ferociously than and sooner the fire seasons have really expanded. As with so many things, uh, climate change is really taking what was true already and just kind of making it even more powerful or in this case, kind of more destructive. And that's what's worrisome is, is um, we don't want a world without fire because fire is, is an important part of the ecosystem. But these fires are something different and that, that's what's scary. To kind of end on a positive note, I think that you know the night is 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 out there for us, and it's something to embrace and and to recognize and to experience. Uh, you know, being out west, um, as I've been a lot, and I think in, and you are, you know, it's just there are a lot of great places that people can go to really have that firsthand experience with the night sky, but also with just darkness and nighttime in general. And I think um, the more people that do that, the more support there'll be for protecting darkness and recognizing its value. So just want to end by encouraging everybody to get out there and, and, and experience the night, and especially if you have kids, to bring them out, give them that firsthand experience. Paul, <laughs> what has what has inspired you this week? Well, I think it's that twin thing of the joy of, in this case, of having a five-year-old, in this case, of seeing her delight at getting a new bike and just loving uh, biking around and then the trying to make sense of, of the wildfire smoke in the sky that is uh, so unnatural and and how do i make sense of these these two emotions um it's just part of being alive and 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 um they both are both emotions are inspiring to me paul thank you very much for coming i, I just uh, you're i gotta say i've read two of your books and you're one of my favorite authors Oh, oh thank I, you. I hope my other favorite authors don't hear that. But it's nice of you to say yeah, that. Thank but you. but they they might, and it's just uh, you know when I saw "Let There Be Night" on the shelf up there, I was like, oh, that's gone. <laughs> I've got that. Yeah. So, so yeah. and and then you said yes to this. So we really appreciate it, Paul. Thank you for for visiting with us today. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on the Art Box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association.